Hello and welcome to Heroes Unmasked, staff stories from Leeds Teaching Hospital's NHS Trust with me, Caroline Verdon. Here's a question for you. What do champion fencers, award-winning sheep farmers and professional rugby players have to do with Leeds Teaching Hospitals? Answer? They all work for the hospitals. This series goes behind the scenes to meet directors, doctors, support staff and everyone in between to find out who the people behind the masks really are. So my first guest is Marco Byrne. Now, as ever with all podcasts, uh, if you like what you hear, remember to follow, to rate and review and we'll be extremely grateful. Now, Marco Byrne is the personal safety trainer for Leeds Teaching Hospitals. So he might look like a big, burly security type man. However... He's a man with a secret because what most people don't realise about Mark is that he's also a champion fencer. There's a thing in the Navy, I don't, it might be all military, but I was in the Navy, called a make amend. And it was supposed to be that you got the afternoon off to make or mend your uniform or your kit or whatever. It's just an afternoon <laughs> off, normally spent in the pub. Um, and I went to my boss and I said, can I get this afternoon off? Can I get a make amend? And he said, well, you can, but I need you to go participate in a sporting event first. So I went, okay. And one of myself and one of my crewmates, uh, we both went up to the gym and we got there and spoke to the chief PTI who informed us that it was a fencing competition. And we were sort of laughing and, and sort of leaping around and doing this a lot and everything. Uh, and he said, but there needs to be three of you. So we said, well, there's only two. There's only me and uh, a, a guy called Paddy Linden who I was who I served with. So we plucked uh, somebody who was dead timing. Basically, that's what it says it is. When you're not doing anything, they put you in places to help out. They plucked him out to be a member of the team. So we went into the gym and we went up to this guy and he explained everything. And he said, to, right, you can do foil, you can do sabre, you can do epee explain the rules, the hit zones and everything. And we were just laughing and thinking it was hilarious. So the first guy that had been dead time in the gym went up and got absolutely obliterated in the three <laughs> fights that he was in. Lost lots to none. Um, Paddy went up, won his first fight. He then goes up for his second fight and wins that one as well. He then goes up for his third fight and wins that one as well. So he comes back... And the chief PTI is saying to him, you do realise you're now the champion, don't you? <laughs> and he was like, of what? He said, look, we'll deal with it in a minute. It's Mark's turn. So I went up. And again, I'm not, we're none of us, we weren't taking it seriously. I win my first fight. I then win my second fight. And I'm stood to one side while another couple. And the chief PTI comes up and says, right, okay. Just so you know, if you win your final fight, this is the RN Scotland fencing championships. <gasps> so if you win your final fight, not only do you become RN Scotland individual EPE champion, the submarine becomes the team champions because we've won two of the three categories. So I went up and did my best and I won the last fight. And the best thing is they brought um, a Commodore in to give the prizes out. And the chief PTI actually went up to him and said, 
the team that have won it have never fenced. <laughs> and the two guys that have won their individual literally thought this was a joke. So, yeah, we, we, we got our prizes. We got nice little trophies that said RN Scotland individual FA champion and then RN Scotland team fencing champion. So we, we went back down to, because I was a submariner, so we went back down to the submarine and found our boss and presented him with these trophies <laughs> saying, you know that competition you sent us to? We won it. So he was like, no. I mean, there, there may have been a few other words in there that we're not allowed to say in, in, in polite conversation. But the, we came in the following, we then went off and, and went to the pub, funnily enough. Um, we came in the following morning and were told to immediately go to the captain's cabin because the captain was so impressed that he now had the bragging rights <laughs> of saying that his submarine were the team fencing champions. So, and did you did you play on? Yeah. Did you like ever play again? Never did it again. Wow. So... Being a submariner, I always think, must be a really hard job. I had a friend who... Um, she was dating a submariner and it, it blew my mind to think that she sometimes wouldn't hear from him in any way, shape or form for, for months. Yeah. Well, they do, they have a system where the family member or the relative or the partner can, can contact the submarine. Um, they have like a little message pro forma because obviously a submarine is completely passive. It does, we don't like sending out noise and a radio signal is noise. So, we only receive so we can get lovely messages from home saying you know this has happened and that's happened and one thing or another but we can't contact Shaw in any way shape or form how long would you be down there at one go how long would you have to not have this contact with the outside world for the longest my first ever patrol um i joined the submarine flotilla and I joined a Polaris submarine, which has obviously now been superseded by Trident. So we were we were the nuclear deterrent for the UK. And we were out for 11 and a half weeks. And that's no sunshine, no contact with the outside world. You don't even know where you are. The, the, the people on board that know where you are is limited. <gasps> so you literally sail out. You go through the North Channel between Ireland and Scotland and you go to a patrol area that's normally outside of shipping lanes and all this kind of thing, and you literally just potter around in little circles, uh, uh, being as quiet as possible, and you do that for 11 weeks, and then you come back and you surface in the Clyde and you go into the base and that's wow. it. Wow, and so the, the Polaris, as you said, was a nuclear deterrent, but what does that really mean in layman's terms what is it that, that you were doing so we are a platform that's hopefully undetectable so in the event of nuclear war we're a launch platform that's our primary role wow. um i also worked in other classes of submarines that aren't nuclear armed um which are called hunter killers which kind of lets you know what they're there for <laughs> right from the get-go you know they're not called run up and cuddles <laughs> or things like that it's it's uh oh, so i suppose sneak up and cuddle would be a better term for a submarine um but yeah you're very much there to sneak around listening um patrol areas and make sure that people we don't want 
aren't straying into areas that we don't want them to be in. And, and So when you were down there for your like 11 and a half weeks, on a day-to-day basis, how did you entertain yourselves? Well, you spend a lot of time asleep because um, obviously on most submarines I served on, you do uh, six on, six off, six on, six off. But on Polaris submarines, you do, or you used to do, I mean, I'm, I'm talking, this is 30 years ago now, um, you did three four-hour day shifts and two six-hour night shifts. So you, there would be three shifts working in rotation. So every few days you got all night off and things like this. And normally when you got all night off, um, we had a reel-to-reel movie projector on board and we would have movies, including some of the latest releases. <sighs> so we would get movies. This is a long time before um, Netflix and piracy yeah. became a thing with, with – with, I mean, we had videos. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 51 years old, so I'm talking – 1990 before the advent of of streaming was ever thought of and i think really before dvds yeah, became yeah. a thing i think dvds were just becoming a thing um so we had real to real movie nights so you had a big screen that dropped down and we all sat around and we had beer on board only obviously that's rationed you're not allowed to just sort of drink <laughs> to excess because you're still in yeah. a submarine you're still inside this yeah this metal tube that's full of compressed air and lots of things that can go horribly wrong. So you would have downtime. You would have, like, say, movie nights. You'd have game nights. Uh, we did, there would be organised events throughout the patrol. Uh, we had a, You have a horse racing night where departments make their own horse, <laughs> and then you've got... It's so, small. It's it's a tabletop. So whilst game. the world's continuing, you are underwater yeah. protecting everybody yeah. whilst making a horse. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to the best of your ability with whatever comes to Brilliant. hand. So yeah, and then you would have a horse racing night, and you could bet on your horse or anybody's horse. It was all completely random because it was all done on the throw of a dice that there would be six horses and they would roll the first dice and it would be number three. So that would be horse number three. Then you'd roll the second dice and it would move two or it would move how many. But it was a social yeah. event. It's it's something a bit different. You entertain yourself during the time that you're down there. And it's, it's a, as you can probably imagine, it's a very tight community. Yeah. That you're, you're in a sealed, pressurised tube with 120 other, at the time, men. It was all men down there. I mean, I think there are women in submarines now, but I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, so it is a tight community. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's kind of in each other's pockets. Because there's not a lot of space. No, there's not a lot of space at all. Um, For a start off, you do a thing called hot bunking, which is where you share your bed with somebody else. So he gets out, you get in. Oh, God. So you have your own sleeping bag. You don't share a sleeping bag. You each have your own individuals. We're not heathens. I mean, <laughs> there are some British standards that must be maintained. Um, so, yeah, it's it, if you do fall out with somebody, you have to make it up with them quite quickly. You, can, you can't hold grudges because you can't get away from anybody. You can't, you can't think, well, well I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to go to the toilet <laughs> for four weeks 
I'm, I'm not going to go to sleep <laughs> for four weeks. No, you, you're always going to bump into people. So while, yeah, there are falling outs, there are people who have crosswords, like anything, because when you're in such a confined space, conversation obviously is at a premium, people are talking, and if politics gets brought up or religion or football or something like this, it's divisive. Yeah. Everybody has their own little opinions, but nothing's allowed to fester. It's quite an unusual and unique way of living. It must give you a, a skill set that you wouldn't have even imagined having. I think tying directly into what I do now, the fact that I'm now the personal safety and de-escalation trainer for the Trust, I think looking back on my time in the in the submarine flotilla, that ability to talk and resolve an issue started all the way back then, that being in that, well, it's forced upon you. Like I said, you, you can't run and hide. You've got to deal with issues. So I think moving forward later in my life, I've always, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got quite a, a fiery temper at times and can be quite loud and quite vocal about things. But there's a kind of a time and a place for that. You kind of learn when to bite your tongue, when you can vent. <laughs> so in your role now, um, what does it involve on a, on a sort of a day-to-day -day level? It's a lot of advice giving at the moment. I'm the only person that fulfills this role within the trust. The majority of, of what we deal with, believe it or not, is external influences. So patients, visitors, members of the public on site, uh, those kind of things. So one of, the, one of my biggest roles is I will, all our security staff wear a body cam, which has obviously footage and audio. I'll get a report through that they've maybe had to restrain somebody. So I just go and give it a look and I'll make sure that the techniques they're using are right. And we use it as a way to sort of signpost training and improvements and discussions and everything like that. So I spend a lot of my time viewing footage. 96% of the incidents that security are called to are resolved in a non-physical manner. So our security officers are absolutely fantastic at talking to people and talking people down. And I've seen this firsthand that, yeah, that some people you're going to go up and you're going to try and reason with them and you're going to be very calming and you're going to be sort of doing everything you can. But other people, you've just got to be quite blunt with them um, and just say, this is not appropriate. If you continue with this, you're going to be escorted off site. And then you get, well, you can't do that. Well, actually, yes, we can under this legislation or this. We are allowed to do it. We're not making idle threats. You need These nurses have got a job to do. And you're just, most people will calm down, they de-escalate. You end up at a situation where they're normally apologising to the nursing staff for, for just being how they're being. Um, like I say, in only 4% of the occasions do we end up having to sort of get hold of somebody and remove them from sight, which I think is, is a really very reassuring statistic to hear. And I know whenever I tell it to the staff when we're, when we're we're discussing things. They're like, oh, wow. Because I think one of the, the misconceptions about security is these big guys show up in stab vests and it's... The muscle. You know, yeah. So there is that bit of a misconception sometimes. But as I've said, most of the time they'll chat and they'll talk and they'll calm down. And it's, it's really, really interesting to watch some of the exchanges. So 30 years ago then, did you ever think when you were in that submarine, many, many miles under the ocean, uh, that that it would lead 
this, you know, your career would lead this way because it's amazing, like you said, how linked in it it seems to be, yet how worlds apart it is at the same time. Not at all. Not at all. Joined the Navy through lack of options, I think, more than anything else. My stepdad at the time was a, a, a Naval Reserve officer and he suggested it. So I joined the Navy and, and was quite happily ticking along in the Navy. And I left the Navy, joined Royal Mail and was a postman for seven years. So did that, uh, left that and ended up working in security. And then kind of the security job I had actually started doing almost as a favour because they were short of staff. And I ended up leaving Royal Mail and doing the security job full time. And then I've kind of dotted around the security industry and done some weird things. I once I once guarded a tree in the middle of a field for one night. A tree? <laughs> they were filming a television programme and they were supposed to be finished filming in one day. And the filming ran over. So they couldn't get the filming finished because the light was fading. <laughs> so they needed somebody to look after the tree overnight. <laughs> So it looked the same in the morning <laughs> as it did the day before because they were worried that somebody would come up and chainsaw off a couple of branches or something. So I ended up sat in a, a, a Land Rover next to a tree in the middle of a field <laughs> overnight to make sure the tree was okay. You'll be happy to know I, I succeeded. <laughs> there was nothing happened. You know, they, they, everything was fine. But yeah, I've done I've done things like that. And then just kind of landed in the trust as a contract security officer, actually looking after two rooms in a building. Step up from a tree. Yeah, it was only supposed to be initially for six weeks. And then eventually the manager who was in charge of the security department at the time just came up to me to one day and said, here's an application form we're, we're recruiting. And I was just like, oh, okay. So yeah, and then I, I got interviewed and I, and I joined the NHS and I haven't looked back since. And how long have you worked for the NHS now? 15 years. I absolutely love it. I mean, I, I love the, the teaching and the interaction. You've no idea what any one given day is going to present you with. You've absolutely no idea. The next call could be because social services are removing somebody's baby in maternity and you have to go up and be there at that incredibly emotionally charged sort of tinderbox atmosphere that, that one wrong word or one wrong look could set these quite distressed parents off. And then the next job after that is an, a student who's drunk in A&E with a sick ball <laughs> on their head because they think they're the first person that's ever thought of doing that. And then, and then you're dealing with somebody who's got a, a mental health illness. You, you're dealing with somebody who's... I, I've once got called to a, um, a ward and there was a gentleman who'd just come out from under anaesthesia following open heart surgery. So I had a huge scar down the front of him. But he was really aggressive because he was suffering from post-sedation confusion. You can't talk to him. He's not listening. He's not in his right mind. He's, he's not He's not doing it's it. It's the drug concoction, it's, it's yeah. the situation he's in. It must make you a really empathetic person because, you know, we've all seen the memes that do the rounds about, you know, we might all be in the same sea, but we're all in a different boat and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's something that you actively see on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you you have to be, there has to be a degree of empathy. 
right up to the moment there doesn't have to be a degree of empathy. <laughs> the other thing is, is that through experience, quite quickly, you know the genuine people and you know that somebody's not doing it for attention or which unfortunately also does happen. It must make for an interesting workplace. We always say we start at seven and we finish at three. We say we reckon on an average day that takes about seven and a half minutes. That's genuinely how long the day feels. So that's Marco Byrne, the personal safety trainer from Leeds Teaching Hospitals. But as we established, what most people don't realise about him is that he's also a fencing champion. Uh, that is what's so wonderful about this podcast, just meeting those people behind the masks, finding out more about what makes them tick. Coming up on our next episode, we chat to Dr Agam Jung. Now, she is a consultant neurologist. She's the clinical lead for motor neurone disease. She's the director of the Motor Neurone Disease Centre in Leeds. And she's also Rob Burrow's consultant and one of the driving forces behind the appeal for the Rob Burrow Centre for Motor Neurone Disease. She has so many stories. But what most people don't realise about her is that she actually used to live in a leper colony. We'll find out more in our next episode. So make sure you click follow, you rate and review and we'll see you next time. Heroes Unmasked is an Under the Mast audio production.